CF to J Street. Travel by bus B25 26 38 41 45 52 and 103. That's the WBAI Local Station Board Meeting, Wednesday, June 12th at 7 p.m. But it's not 7 p.m. now, it's 5 p.m. And you're listening to WBAI New York. Good afternoon and welcome to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces and I'm Celeste Katz here with Jeff Simmons every Thursday right now at 5 p.m. So, hey Jeff, what's up? Good afternoon, Celeste. Good show coming up. We have some interesting uh, interesting guests. We have kind of a two-part show today, I think. We're going to be talking some politics first, keep it sort of local at home, and then we're going to be branching out, of course, to what uh, everybody, I think, uh, around the world, certainly here at home and in Europe, is thinking about, which is the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Yes, and in fact, our president... Uh, was overseas and commemorating this uh, earlier today, but uh, took uh, a moment during this solemn occasion or a little earlier to uh, uh, tweak Robert Mueller and Nancy Pelosi. Couldn't even hold back on any criticisms on a day like today. You must be incredibly surprised by this. (laughs) You know, the president just always seems to be restrained. Yeah, I think that, well, look, I think at least we can say for one thing, uh, he did show up for the event. There was that issue last time of him uh, not appearing and whether or not that was an actual issue of weather, inclement weather and his ability to travel. But there was that uh, there was that commemoration where uh, Angela Merkel and uh, Emmanuel Macron were uh, were joining forces together and uh, he was not in evidence. Yeah, I think about also this week being, or this past weekend being the start of LGBTQIA Pride Month and the president uh, uh, making remarks, you know, to, uh, or tweeting, you know, Happy Pride Month, something similar. And uh, the criticism he also came under about, you know, that, well, he might be the first Republican president to acknowledge this. Those are his words, but look at his actions. Look at all the things that he's been doing which have affected and hurt the LGBTQIA communities. Yeah, actually, there was something that came, I think, uh, that came up specifically about that regarding uh, transgender uh, members of the service. Did he make, was that a recent comment or was and, that a revived comment about it, how they can't, uh, they can't allow transgender troops because they... Uh, take drugs because people are not allowed to be using uh, medications, which I think is pretty much completely not true. There's been several actions against the trans community, that being one of them reversing an earlier Obama policy that allowed the access. Then there's the issue uh, which is moving ahead regarding uh, homeless shelters, not allowing trans into homeless shelters, or being able to turn away transgender individuals. Right, right. And then on top of that, of course, it sort of... uh, Separately, but relatedly, in terms of cutting off services, there were some issues about whether or not they're going to be providing uh, educational and English language services and so on to uh, children of migrant families. So uh, I think I'm sensing sort of a theme here. I could be wrong, but uh, this is something that we have been. Uh, that we have been tracking here at WBAI for quite a while. And Jeff, you obviously, going back to uh, to Pride, you had an incredible, incredible special about that, which I strongly encourage.
encourage everybody to listen to. If you have not, we have it up on SoundCloud. Just go to uh, Driving Forces on WBAI on SoundCloud, or you can actually subscribe to our show and get a feed of it right to your phone on iTunes or any major podcast platform. And since we're talking about Stonewall, it's interesting also to note what took place today, that the NYPD commissioner, James O'Neill, uh, uh, issued an apology 50 years after the Stonewall uprising to yeah. be able to say the police actions were wrong at that time. Right. And I, I, I watched uh, some of that. And he said, look, I don't claim to be an expert on Stonewall, but what the police did at that time was wrong. It's, I, I don't know, is this sort of a bittersweet moment, I guess? It's sort of good that there was an apology, questions about why it had to take, you know, 50 years was everyone busy or something? It's, <laughs> it's, I mean, good that we're seeing this, but, you know, uh, an apology 50 years later, is, you know, uh, okay, let me step back. Okay. This climate, right. much better mm -hmm. than what we had in, uh, 50 years ago. I also think of that between then and now, all of this deep advocacy that has taken place, that even within the NYPD, a number of members have formed what is known as GOAL, the Gay Officers Action League, which yes. I think is over, it's got to be over 20 years old now, uh, that there are a number of out and proud, you know, uh, members of the force uh, who have helped move this along, uh, the department along over the last two decades. Um, so, uh, you know, I know we're spending some time in this, but I do want to ask something of you, Celeste, because last night you spent some time with last week's guest. Uh, you were uh, Ian Rafowitz. Yeah, Ian Rafowitz. Actually, he was, uh, yeah, we had a, a, a Q&A at the Barnes & Noble in Union Square about his new book, The Tribalization of Politics. And it, it went really well. A bunch of people showed up, a bunch of his college friends, but also a bunch of people. Even one guy who told me he was a, a BAI listener came up and spoke to me about some of our programming. So uh, it, was, it was interesting. It was a sort of an expanded version of a really good conversation we had here on the program recently about his book, which is essentially this this major analysis of how the rhetoric of uh, Rush Limbaugh actually went through every transcript of every Rush Limbaugh show uh, towards uh, Barack Obama paved the way for the Trump presidency. And it was uh, really fascinating, some of the stuff he dug up. And he was a great guest last week. In fact, uh, even though our spring fundraising drive is over, right. he had uh, donated uh, to our drive several copies of his book. Yes, absolutely. So if you want to get involved and check out this book, which I strongly recommend and I seriously think will be of interest to people who are uh, into politics, into uh, issues of uh, racial justice, issues of economics, uh, even issues of the media, mass media and propaganda and so on, definitely check this out. You can get a copy by making a pledge here. Give us a call, 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602, or just go to WBAI.org. And the easiest way to also do this is what I do. I just do the recur. I don't even have to think about it. I do the recurring donation once a month uh, because I'm a BAI buddy. So you could become a BAI buddy, just five, ten dollars. You know, if you're thinking of five, just go up to ten. It's not much more over the course of the year. And when you call and become a BAI buddy, if you're pledging, say you want this book uh, by Ian Rafowitz. Absolutely. And when you become a BAI buddy, you can choose to support your favorite program. Maybe it's I don't know, Driving Forces. 
the one you're listening to right now because I think that's kind of a good program. But you can choose any. If you have a favorite program that you listen to during the week, it could be Jeff's other program, City Watch. City Watch. It could be Democracy Now. It could be Black Seinfeld. It could be any program. It could be this this fellow James, this nice fellow James who uh, who makes this program happen here. He's a oh for God's sake! I know with the uh, the creaky. We are working on the studio. We are working on the studio, and thank you for your support on that. But James, you have a program. Tell the people about uh, why they should be your BAI buddy. Well, uh, you know there are many many great programs on WBAI, and uh, as as engineer, I've grown more and more to appreciate your program right now. I think it's a wonderful show. Both of you are great. Uh, but I do a, an old record show of classical music on Friday mornings, and uh, it's, if you like that kind of thing, then people should choose the name choose of the program the, is Morning Erse. Okay, so thank you, Celeste. Thank you. And the number to call is five one six six two zero three six zero two. That's five one six six two zero three six zero two. Or just go online to give to wbai.org. And if you've got your smartphone, just text WBAI to 41444. Uh, we're now going to go to our first guest. Oh, okay, great. Do we have him uh, all great. super, super, super? Okay. Actually, this is uh, this is going to be fun. This is something that I have known for quite a while. I think if you are interested in New York politics or national politics, actually even international politics, this will be a name that's familiar to you. Our first guest today is Hank Scheinkoff. He is the president of Scheinkoff Communications. It's a strategic communications company serving corporate, political, public affairs clients, which he founded in 1981. Before you were born. Before you were born. Uh, <laughs> Before I was born, <laughs> So that guy, so the comedian over here has worked on uh, approximately 700 political campaigns, four continents, 14 foreign nations. He's worked for people that you may have heard of, like Bill Clinton, Mike Bloomberg, uh, and uh, the former president of Mexico, Vicente Fox. So Dr. Sheinkoff. Oh, and I might add, he used to be a cop. So Dr. Sheinkoff, pleasure to welcome you to WBAI. Well, it's always a pleasure to, to hear your voice, Celeste, and I'm glad Jeff Simmons is there with you. So what's going on? You tell us. That's why we have, that's why we have you on the show. So we wanted to well, talk to you. Well, there's a lot of stuff going on. But in particular, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on with Governor Cuomo. I, had, uh, I was filling in on a program called Waking Up recently where I got a little bit into Cuomo uh, working with Vice President Joe Biden on his presidential campaign, them kind of teaming up to do fundraising. But, uh, you know, what's, what's the situation with Cuomo right now? Is he just really not looking at the presidency at all? He is just going to, you know, uh, help, help the party take back the White House or what? I don't think he really um, wants to be president, um, or he would be way up in front of it. He is uh, certainly an extraordinary fundraiser. He's, uh, you know, he's good at some things. Uh, he can, he knows how to run campaigns. So if he were really serious about this, he'd be way up front by now. I don't think he wants to be president, but I sure think he'd like to be uh, maybe vice president, maybe uh, be the kingmaker, maybe be the guy who. Uh, is so powerful that he'll never be forced out as governor of New York State. He can run for fourth term if he chooses, which he's already said he wants to do, I think, and that was reported, and maybe win it. Um, he's an unusual fellow, not uh, predictable in many ways and predictable in others, and certainly you know that. You've covered him. He's, uh, I, I mean, I, in, in the interest of candor, I mean, I, as you may, you also covered the governor's race in 2002 when he ran the first camp time, and I kicked him out. I knocked him out of the race in three months. <laughs> 
you may recall. <laughs> but uh, but who's counting? But yeah, that was yeah. the uh, that was the famous incident where he pulled out of the primary, but his name, I believe, remained on the Liberal Party line. And in New York State, you have to get fifty thousand votes for governor on that Correct. line to retain ballot Correct. status. He uh, he pulled out in favor of. Uh, Carl McCall was the eventual Democratic nominee, right. I believe, but he blew up right. the Liberal Party line. That killed the Liberal Party, and that was the end of them. And, uh, uh, you know, some people would say that's good news. Others say it was not good news. I would say it probably was lousy news for everybody all the way around, because having multiple points of view is what makes democracy work. I've never believed that, uh, that fusion tickets shouldn't happen. I think they produce better candidacies, and in some ways they've been much more democratic with a small D than traditional party voting. Right. Well, uh, fusion, fusion tickets. I was just going to say, worked for, for uh, LaGuardia, certainly. Worked for LaGuardia, put a uh, fellow named, I think, Davis. He was a communist on the city council, and that's fine with me. It's called diversity. Um, it helps other people get into office, Liberal Party, the American Labor Party. I mean, all of these things that are very much uh, New York and very much urban, when you consider that in Milwaukee, for example, you had socialists elected mayor for long periods of time, and they were referred to as sewer socialists. Did a campaign in Milwaukee, I think, 30 years ago, and the um, before the world began. Anyway, the um, and the guy who was elected was a socialist, and uh, they were called sewer socialists because they kind of kept the sewers working and the and the place functioning. Mm -hmm. um, and when you have that kind of diversity in uh, in uh, and pr political cross cutting pressures, uh, you perform. You, you have a higher you have a higher pressure level to perform because if you don't. The coalition you created will fall apart. So speaking, and I think that keeps politicians honest. Speaking of, we're speaking of socialism at the moment, but if we want to sort of back the camera out a little bit and look more broadly at the idea of progressivism. Now, yeah. Cuomo, I think, really has uh, portrayed himself and to, you know, to arguably, uh, uh, in a fair way, as a, as a progressive, as somebody who's been out there on issues like gun safety and marriage equality and so on. Uh, there are some people who don't think he's progressive enough. Where do you think he kind of comes down on that? Uh, look, it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. What's progressive enough? Um, I don't know. If you ask Zephyr Teachout, it was, uh, you know, what this is was not progressive enough, say. Oh, please, please, progressive enough. You know, it's kind of wacky when you think about it for a second. Marriage equality um, and getting the Republicans to vote for it, who else but Andrew Cuomo could have done that? That's a big deal. It's not a small deal. I mean, he came back, whether people can say it was because of political pressure or not, and he ripped up the Independent Democratic Conference in the state Senate. That's a pretty significant thing. And put some money behind it. Um, he helped elect the first uh, African-American, um, in fact, first woman, and certainly the first African-American woman, to be elected attorney general in New York State history. Uh, that's pretty significantly progressive by any measure. Um, I just want know, to correct I, I myself earlier when I said Zephyr Teachout. I was thinking of a previous governor's race. This time I was thinking Cynthia Nixon is the name I should have mentioned. Ah, yes, Cynthia Nixon. Yes, yes. So, she, uh, and I think her, her great experience in the area was certainly helpful to her, not at all. So, anyway. Hank, as you're talking about things like uh, same-gender marriage, what would you say have been uh, Cuomo's uh, most significant successes in recent years? Because then I'm curious where you think some of the failures have been. Ah, well, why don't we go backwards and say, why don't you ask me where I think the failures have Where been? do you think the failures have been? The failures have been in, in places that you would expect governors to fail. And let's go back and talk about governors for a second. In my experience, working for governors, senators, congressmen, all, and congresswomen, all these kinds of things, right? 
governors have a unique position is when they accomplish something is when they get into trouble. You know, that's the problem, because then people look and they say, oh, the governor did this, but I didn't like that necessarily. So the problem for governor who's to be successful, and success is defined in modern politics is by being reelected or elected again, or if he's taking time out to come back and be the governor, is to do as little as possible, because then you got nothing to complain about, right? The difference is this guy's done things on all sides of it. But the great failure will always be for any governor in New York State, the failure to re- rescue everything north of Orange County, from the New York City border, north of Orange County, um, from the economic recession that has been in place since the uh, destruction of the American, the, the real destruction of the American industrial economy, in the early part of the 1980s and the 20th century. And in fairness, in fairness, that is, and they have made a lot of promises about that, empire zones and so on, but in fairness, that is a problem that has has persisted for uh, an unbearably long time, and many people have promised to solve it. Uh, Memorably, Hillary Clinton talking about uh, an incredible amount of job creation up there that I just don't think ever materialized. Didn't. That's that's my point, Celeste, and I'm glad you, you, you hit it that way. I mean, it's, it's an, it's an intractable issue when the destruction of the industrial economy um, and the, the decline of uh, traditional uh, smokestack industries, New York was particularly hit hardest, and I think we lost one out of every two jobs in the country that was smokestack industry-related. We lost in the early part of the 1980s. Um, a fellow named Mario Cuomo was the governor, and he lived with the first part of that problem. And it was really something that's intractable, hard to figure out, and, and uh, this governor's tried to do something about it. Um, he's come up with, with different ways to use uh, the Economic Development Corporation. And it's, I don't know how you solve it. Um, the MTA. Um, the MTA is a state-run agency. New York City is responsible under the agreement that, that uh, gave the subway system to the uh, state to manage for, the, for policing the subway system. Um, but it's, it's in trouble. But it, it, did, it got into trouble long before he, he got there. It got into trouble because of a general uh, disinvestment. And that's, frankly, the failure of Washington. I just finished a book about this, actually. The failure of Washington to provide sufficient monies for urban areas where public transportation is the norm rather than highway travel. Uh, And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a serious problem. So, Um, Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I want to make sure, because I know our time is limited, I want to go to the presidential race. So it was just announced a short while ago that that Cuomo is going to be helping Joe Biden during his... uh, trek through New York State. Uh, how much can Cuomo help him? With people that like the governor, he can help him a lot. With people that don't like him, he can't help at all. But the fact is that Joe Biden will be very uh, will be very attractive to older, probably older Democrats, people that want stability, and people who don't want tremendous change within the Democratic Party. Different question. Andrew Cuomo represents that kind of stability. Um, and that's, that's very important for Joe Biden. But that New York should be in play in a presidential campaign is ridiculous. New York's not going to be in play in that primary necessarily, and it certainly won't be in play in the fall. You won't see much television or anything else here. If, uh, you know, if, if Quasimodo were the Democratic candidate for president in New York State, he would win over, he or she, depending on which Quasimodo there is, would win overwhelmingly. I'm, I'm really curious what you think of you know, how Kirsten Gillibrand has been doing, because, you know, I read the Times piece recently. I mean, it's focused on her struggles to be to get significant traction. What are your thoughts on this? She should save her money and buy a house because she's not going anyplace. The the uh, the uh, a lot of a lot of Democrats, wrongly or rightly, are not going to forgive her for tossing Al Franken out a window, whether he was 
whether he had done something wrong or not, I guess he did, but I'm not sure because I can't figure it out. I guess he did. If people felt that he did, then he did. All right? Um, I think that her failure to be able to take the Me Too movement and to use it in her, for own, as, a, as her particular personal pl- political vehicle speaks to her but not to the movement. The fact is that women have every right and have experienced those, those, those terrible kinds of activities by stupid men. And, uh, you know, she, it should have, she should have had the capacity to turn that into a national political movement, and she didn't. Simple. And uh, Hank, as we as we wrap up this uh, this part of the program and this uh, discussion of of the presidential race, uh, Bill De Blasio, the mayor of New York, not exactly uh, blowing the roof off uh, off of America with the poll numbers there. What do, what yeah. do you think? Uh, what do you think of his of well, his chances? Well, let me be clear. I mean, I like Elizabeth Warren this week a lot, but it's a long time until we get there. So. Anything can happen, and anybody can be the nominee, but it won't be Bill de Blasio. Different set of reasons. Bill de Blasio's basic thinking on this is that, my hunch, is that if the left collapses, he can, be, he can pick up the progressive pieces and reassemble it. And, and he'll be there, and when they all fail, he'll be there, and it won't matter. But the problem is he's got to answer for NYCHA. He's going to have to answer for corruption, which is rampant in this administration. He's going to have to answer for mismanagement. And he's going to have to answer for a different thing that is really, really completely unusual. No one cares that he's not here. He is the mayor who is sleepwalking through history, who hasn't made the dent, who's talked a lot about an awful lot of things, but he's going to have to answer for Rikers because it's still open. You know, it would be nice, Hank, if you would develop an opinion on something once in a while. Well, you know... Well, we can talk about books the last two, whatever you'd like. I think that's going to be uh, probably something we got to say for our next program. But uh, Dr. Hank Steinkoff, where can people find out more about you and your work? I don't know. There's enough clips online, I guess. Um, they go to Shankoff, www. You know, go on the web and go to Shankoff.com and you'll come up with Hank, I guess. You know, that's, that's been a great run. I'm very happy that, I, that, it, uh, that it worked out this way. You know, it could have been different, you know. Could have well, been a lot different. Yeah, true, true. You could you could still be you could still be a cop. Yeah, well, I'd be retired by now. Uh, so we got to, I'm not ready to go to an old age home, and I don't have a spittle cup. So I suspect there's a lot more campaigns to do, and a lot more things that that um, you know. I spent a lot of my time working for public sector unions, as you know, around the country, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot more battles to do, and I'd like to be part of them. I hope that I'll still be here to do them. Okay, well. Veteran strategist and consultant Hank Scheinkoff, we will be keeping an eye on you. And thanks for joining us today here on WBAI. I am grateful. Thank you. So one thing I've always liked about Hank is, you're right, he always has an opinion. Uh, the New York Times had once called him uh, a, one of the city's master image peddlers. And right. kind of stuck with me. I like that. Yeah, you know, he is an interesting guy. I'm trying to remember. I've, lo- I've known him for at least 15 years and I remember uh, just having when you when you first start covering politics in this city at that time uh, you know way back in the you know, 1900s whatever it was when I started covering politics here but there was a certain group of people that it was helpful to know certain people who mm-hmm. knew what was going on who'd worked on a, a bunch of campaigns at that time and he was certainly certainly one of them and I know you know all the people in that circle as well and very quotable now I do want to let our listeners know uh, that in the second half of the show after our next guest will be coming up very shortly we're going to open up the caller line 
lines, and that number is 212-209-2877. We'll go to that right after our second guest. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. So now we're going to switch topics a little bit here. And if you're just joining us again, this is Driving Forces on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz here with Jeff Simmons. And today, of course, marks the 75th anniversary of D-Day when Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy to fight a pivotal battle against the occupying Nazi forces. Uh, Thirteen members of the U.S. Armed Forces, including four from our state of New York right here, received the Medal of Honor in relation to D-Day. That is the nation's highest award for valor in combat. And uh, we just want to take a moment in honor of D-Day to read out those names for you on the air. And we're just going to do those in alphabetical order. Uh, Carlton W. Barrett, Fulton, Oswego County, New York. John Edward Butts, Medina, Orleans County, New York. Charles DeGlopper, Grand Island, New York. Robert Cole, San Antonio, Texas. Arthur DeFranzo, Saugus, Massachusetts, Walter Ehlers, Junction City, Kansas, Joe Gandara, Santa Monica, California, John Kelly, Venango Township, Pennsylvania, Jimmy Monteith Jr., Lowmore, Virginia, Carlos Ogden, Borton, Illinois, Frank Paragori, Esmont, Virginia, John Pinder Jr., Burgettstown, Pennsylvania, and Theodore Roosevelt Jr., Oyster Bay, New York. So with that, we're now joined by Joe Daniels, CEO of the National Medal of Honor Museum. The museum is being built to celebrate courage, patriotism, and integrity, values that are embodied by the Medal of Honor recipients. Previously, Joe had spent 11 years as president and CEO of the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. That's the nonprofit organization that built and now operates the commemorative space at the site of the original World Trade Center. Joe, thanks for joining Celeste and me here on Driving Forces. Thanks for having me, guys. So to start off, just tell us a little about your current work and how the 9-11 Memorial was different from what you're doing now as far as the Medal of Honor Museum. Sure. So I, you know, working on the 9-11 Memorial Museum was an incredible sort of privilege of a lifetime experience. I, I joined back in 2005 as the... 11th employee and I became the president in 2006 when Mayor Mike Bloomberg became the the chairman of the board and it was just such a privilege not only to you know really engage with the 9-11 community but with New York in particular it was such a deep impact on this city and on the state and um, we opened of course the memorial on the 10th anniversary 9-11-2011 and then the museum um, in May of 2014. And it was just, it was tremendous. And I decided after the 15th anniversary at the end of 2016 um, to really seek a new adventure. And after a while, looking at different things, this project came along. And there's something in the DNA of this project, which just reminds me actually of the power of the 9-11 Museum, which fundamentally is telling the stories of just incredible bravery and selflessness, whether it's the more than 440 first responders uh, who perished that day or the thousands of stories of civilians in the buildings and on the planes uh, who lay their lives down to try and help, you know, their co-workers or their friends or complete strangers. 
and the story of the Medal of Honor recipient, it's very similar. I mean, these are guys who, when they were faced with unimaginable circumstances, made choices to help their fellow man, to help those that they serve with, and ultimately to help and defend this country, um, which is so special and which requires all of us to exercise some responsibility for And we do want to talk about that at length, but before I go a little forward into that, I want to just talk a little about last week, because I understand you were reunited with Jon Stewart and Mayor Bloomberg last week. That's when uh, the 9-11 Memorial Glade uh, was uh, was opened. Can you talk a little about that experience coming back to that? Yeah, I mean, it it was incredible. We we started this project um, when I was there under Mayor Mike's leadership. And to see it come to fruition and have the recovery worker community just be so supportive. And we did, we wanted to do something for them. You know, one of the enduring legacies, of course, of 9-11 is that it was not just the people, of course, who died on that day, but the thousands of people who came down to help and who are currently dealing with just awful, the awful effects of of being at ground zero for that nine-month recovery period. The memorial on the Glade is meant to parallel that that ramp that New Yorkers will never forget, that construction ramp that went down into the pit. And now it's a place that is a it's contemplative, and it will really make the millions of visitors that the 9-11 memorial gets every year think about those sacrifices. And, it, of course, the 2,983 names that are on the memorial will always be there, will always be honored. But it's an tremendously important part of the story to remind every single American who comes there or people from around the world that this country came together with just limitless compassion in the aftermath to try to take those first important steps in the recovery. And when we're talking about special commemorations just now about 9-11, now returning to today's commemoration, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. I understand that you uh, at the Medal of Honor Museum and other people all around the country are doing something very special in memory of people who received the Medal of Honor. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did today? Sure. I mean, we have this idea um, to mark the anniversary of of the 75th anniversary of D-Day by highlighting the 13 men who earned their medals as a result of the Normandy invasion. And it's, it's just incredible. When you read off those names, which super, super appreciated, you know, it's literally from sea to shining sea. There's from California to the middle of the country, um, all the way here to New York. It shows that even amongst this incredible and unforgettable uh, part of our history, uh, there was these men that distinguished themselves even further by just incredible action and bravery and honestly self-sacrifice. I mean, so many of these stories are about people that expose themselves to often, in this case, you know, they were, they were killed in helping try to save as many of their, uh, their, their fellow squad mates as possible to try to make the critical gains against uh, the Nazis that was needed to make that operation successful. So we contacted all of the hometowns, and each one of them agreed to toll the bells 13 times in honor of the 13 recipients. And it's just a very sort of grassroots thing that we did, and we're really happy about the support that we've seen. And 
you know, the National Medal of Honor Museum right now, we have a long way to go um, to make to open this and make this the national treasure that it needs to be. But in these next couple of years, as we design and construct, uh, we really want to raise awareness about this medal that not only is about the individuals who earned it, but really, as you mentioned, embodies the best of who we are as a country, the, the patriotism, the, the idea of putting others above self, the commitment and, and integrity. We thought this was a great way to, to highlight some of those that have earned that medal. I was speaking with a Gold Star mom during a special Memorial Day program that we had this year on our morning program, Waking Up. And it always strikes me that it's really impossible to say how many people have have performed their duties in, in combat and active service with such great valor that maybe you can explain a little bit about uh, are there specific requirements or uh, uh, parameters for yeah, people I mean, who I receive think- the Medal of Honor? Because it's, it's, you look at people who are serving now and it seems like uh, who, who shouldn't deserve some sort, of, some sort of honor for that. Well, I think that's a great point. And, you know, the Medal of Honor is, represents the absolute pinnacle of all of the, the service medals that are given out for military service. Um, and they, they always are, by definition, um, stories that are incredibly emotionally engaging and really capture what the best of what one can do faced with impossible odds. But when you speak with the recipients themselves, they will tell you they barely, you know, they, they wear the medal. They don't wear it for themselves. They wear it for those whose stories aren't told or who never came back from Normandy or from Iraq or Afghanistan, and it really represents this sort of legacy that is a continuum in our history. And, you know, again, like the analogies for me on a personal level really are, are pretty tight when it comes to uh, the memorial, 9-11 Memorial and Museum, that we, you know, the stories of the civilians, many of these stories we will never know. I mean, we, we do know some of people that stayed behind to try to help uh, their co-workers, uh, I'm thinking of Abe Zalmanowicz, uh, you know, down all these flights of stairs to try to get out when his co-workers could have just left him behind and gone ahead. So the medal is worn for those that never came home, and I think these recipients understand that they carry a very, very special and very heavy burden because their stories are being highlighted, but it's exactly to your point, it's representative of the bravery and sacrifice that so many uh, gave that whose names we'll, we, we might never highlight. So it, it's important to acknowledge the medal and, and the service behind it. And Joe, you think about the stories that, you know, that people may never know uh, or may never hear about. I've been working recently. You and I met when I was with the uh, Downtown Alliance at the time of the 10th anniversary. Uh, and I, oh, yeah. I, I felt incredibly privileged I think the last time I saw you, you were on crutches, believe it or not. That's a long yeah. time ago. Uh, but uh, I was—I felt privileged to be able to work in uh, in the uh, uh, on the anniversary of uh, September 11th, ten years after, to talk about the recovery and resilience of Lower Manhattan. But now, recently, I've been doing a lot of work with the Holo- uh, the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust downtown, and meeting with a number of Holocaust survivors. And so that makes me think of what you're going through. How are you battling the clock to preserve the information of people, uh, you know, who've borne witness to the pivotal events of this era? 
Well, it's, it's one of the, the, the primary challenges. I mean, there are only, first of all, there's only, there's been about 3,500 medals of honor that have been awarded in our country's history since the Civil War. A really significant portion, actually, of those medals were, came from the Civil War, where Abraham Lincoln started the medal. But the hierarchy of all these other medals that we have, whether it's the Bronze Star, the Distinguished Service Crosses, didn't really come into play until uh, World War One. And right now, there are only 70 living Medal of Honor recipients. And so, and, and only three of them are from the World War II era that are still alive. So we do feel this sense of urgency to collect the stories and the artifacts to make sure that we build this museum, you know, as soon as we possibly can, um, partly for that reason, because just generationally, you know, people are dying. And there's, we've lost a number of living recipients uh, this year. And the young guys, the post-9-11 recipients, are, that's their focus. You know, they, I have three Medal of Honor recipients on my board of directors, and there's, there's certainly this urgency uh, to produce something that this country, many people think it should already have, which is a National Medal of Honor Museum. So we're, we wake up every day, you know, taking steps forward to, to make it happen, and so far, so good. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz here with Jeff Simmons, and we are speaking to Joe Daniels. He's the CEO of the National Medal of Honor Museum, and we're discussing D-Day. So, Joe, where are you right now in uh, plans for uh, having this museum become open to the public and, and be a memorial to to those people who have received the nation's highest combat honor? Yeah, well, it's been, you know, it's, a, it's been a challenging and, and very interesting experience. But I, I have to tell you that after uh, uh, the 9-11 Memorial Project, which, as you guys know, as New Yorkers, especially in the early days, it was a incredibly complex challenge. So I feel prepared, and I know my team, uh, some of whom worked at the 9-11 Memorial, were ready for this challenge. And this idea of a National Medal of Honor Museum has been sort of kicked around for a very long time. And it was, uh, we were, it was intended initially to be built in a uh, small town in South Carolina named Mount Pleasant, where the USS Yorktown is. Um, when I took the job about a year ago and we got down there, we realized that this is a national mission. This is something, the Medal of Honor is something that can do something that so few things can do these days, which is whether you're on the left or the right or you're from, you know, San Francisco or a small town in West Virginia, all Americans can get behind it. And our organization made a decision that we wanted to be in a city that gets, gives us the best chance to reach as many Americans as possible. So we're undergoing what we're calling a targeted national search, and we are um, committed to making a decision about which city we're going to be, uh, it's going to be our new home by this September, and then we're looking at somewhere between three and four years to get this open, which, you know, for a national museum is a accelerated time frame, but that urgency to get this done and have I know I can picture this the, the day that it opens and we have every living Medal of Honor recipient, every living president, you know, thousands of veterans in the public there when the eyes of the country are on that museum. We, we really want to get it done so people can start 
taking the lessons from what these recipients have done and really apply it to their civilian lives. And Joe, so how can people find out more about the plans for the museum and about the work that you're doing? Sure. I would encourage people to go uh, online to mohmuseum.org. I think that one thing that I I remember from the 9-11 Memorial and Museum experience is that those individuals, whether they were our major donors that were, you know, signing big six, seven and eight figure checks, or the people that sent in who are on fixed income and literally sent in change in the early days, when we opened the memorial, there was a huge sense of pride that they supported a project in the early days, and then that project came to fruition, and it made, of course, the city, the state, and the country proud. So when you go to mohmuseum.org, there's a lot of different ways to follow our progress. Of course, if you want to contribute and whatever you can, you know, you feel comfortable with, this is going to be a journey, but it literally is going to end in opening America's next national treasure. And I really want to encourage people to, to participate and to get involved. Joe Daniel, CEO of the National Medal of Honor Museum. Thank you so much for joining Celeste Katz and me, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI. You bet. It's, I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, New York is, is will always hold a super special place to me. And I think the work of the the, the Holocaust Museum of the Jewish Heritage down in lower Manhattan is a, it's a really special part of a very special city. So good luck on that. And I appreciate you guys having me. Thanks again. So I do want to let our listeners know that the lines are now open. James is staring at that switchboard waiting for the calls at 212-209-2877. What have you thought uh, today about what our guests have said about some of the topics uh, Celeste and I brought up? Let us know. We, we talked a little about the governor, for instance. I'm sure people have strong opinions on that about whether Cuomo uh, should pursue a fourth term, and if you whether you want him to run or not for a fourth term, if he's going to go for it, what should he accomplish before then? What do you want to see? Uh, also, if you have any comments on what Joe Daniels just talked about, about the Medal of Honor Museum or D-Day, please call us and let us know at 212-209-2877. Right. The number again, 212-209-2877, 75th anniversary of D-Day, obviously a really pivotal and uh, extremely bloody moment in in military history, but sort of the beginning of the end for the Third Reich, uh, the president over there commemorating this and uh, speaking about a few other topics as well. What do you think of how he is uh, handling this this landmark moment uh, in our history? 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. I think we have some calls coming in, but if you want to talk about either of the things that we've talked about today, which mainly are... Uh, uh, politics, uh, Governor Cuomo and so on, or the commemoration of the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And we do have someone on the line, so let's go. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where you're from? Yes, good evening. My name is Willa May from Brooklyn, New York. Welcome. Okay. Um, I thank you for taking my call. And I just thank God that we were all here to honor our veterans, every last one of them. My comment is, my fa- I'm black. My father and all my uncles are fought in World War II. All of my uncles, they are all with God now. And why is it that they don't have 
see our Tuskegee Air Force men on the stage to, because, you know, they went, they were escort, escort fighters, and they escorted the fighters to Berlin and back, and they were requested. So why is it that there's no, none of the black veterans ever be on the stage? Uh, they're all old now, but why? And I'm, I'm going to hang up. That's my comment. Well, thank you so much. They all sir. served in the service like everybody else. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and that is true. And I think that uh, as as far as we have come with uh, the the composition of our nature of our uh, our nation's military, clearly there is a history there of segregation. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there is a history of different treatment or even mistreatment. Our caller just now mentioned the uh, Tuskegee Airmen. That was a, a a very prominent group, but there were certainly other groups of uh, of soldiers who were not white. Uh, people who served in the forces that, um, in, in many different ways, that maybe have not gotten the same type of recognition or have had to wait for recognition. So I think there's probably some questions about whether the military can be in the future or is now more than in the past an equalizing force or a, a less prejudiced uh, presence in our lives than other segments of society. Well, you know what, well, you know, you and I talked about this just uh, yeah. with one of my guests on Sunday with Tanya Domi and what she right. went through. Uh, uh, you know, she was a closeted lesbian at that time and not being and being investigated, right. uh, uh, you know, long before uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Right. So absolutely, absolutely. There are different experiences there. And it is, is very interesting to think about whether people are being equally and fairly recognized for their contributions. 212-209-2877 is the number. We have a caller right now, WBAI. You're on the air. What's your name and where are you from? Uh, Matt from Long Island. Hey, Matt, what's on your mind today? Uh, I'm a member of the Veterans of Foreign Wars. And um, I'm hoping Cuomo doesn't run. Uh, okay. What? Why? Uh, what is it about him that uh, doesn't work for you? Well, I, you know, you go to any other state where most states, including Connecticut, Massachusetts, the veterans get education for free. Under his watch this year, they almost passed it. The Democrats, where they were going to give free education to people here illegally, and they were going to cut the free education to children whose parents were killed in combat. And that was pretty disgusting. And uh, it's on Cuomo's watch. It's been growing that way. We've been going farther left without thinking things through. And when you're going to cut the educational benefits for kids who lost their parents, one of their parents, mother or father, fighting for our country, and you're going to use that money, or, or part of it at least, to give education for illegals, and I'm not saying that's the wrong thing to do, but you better not be cutting uh, veterans who <laughs> who gave their life and, and are relying on this country to take care of their children. And it's not right. Maybe, Matt, you can educate me on this a little bit because I should know more about the budgetary process on this than I do. But I'm just curious as to how much of that would be uh, funding that is federally allocated versus how much is controlled by the state. You know how much it's very it's very little because they, if the federal government if you didn't sign up for certain GI bills um, and and other benefits, you're not going to get it. Uh, in New York State, they've always had the the time honored uh, tradition that if you are a New Yorker and you go overseas and fight and you die, 
your kid can go to a state school for free. Mm -hmm. um, and Newsday on the Lounge did an excellent article on it mm -hmm. in their editorial section. Uh, they all ran, and no one would take uh, credit for who put it in the bill and removed it and removed the veteran benefits in the bill. Uh, they said they said it was a clerical error. Mm -hmm. I'm not buying it. No one is. Um, and they need to be held accountable. We're, I'm in the VFW. We're going to find out who pulled those benefits and why. I will uh, definitely be interested to find out uh, what you learn from that. And that is, look, that's another another great issue. And this is something that we also talked about on Memorial Day and we have talked about in some of our other programming, uh, the, the allocation of funding and the treatment of veterans and their families. And uh, sometimes, uh, I'm, I'm not assigning blame in this particular case because I don't know all the facts of, of how that funding is working or more to the point, not working. But we certainly have talked about the issue here on WBAI of having uh, people in public life, public figures, elected officials, talking a lot about the, tr the troops and uh, the military and so on on special occasions, and then a lot of people waiting for help or going through a lot of red tape or not uh, not getting any attention at all once the cameras go away. So interesting question there. So we've got another caller on the line. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name and where are you from? Hello. Hi. Hello. Yep. Yes, my name, my name is Richard. Let me turn down the radio for a second. That would help. Thank you. Hello. I'm calling from Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. Hi, Richard. What's on your mind today? Yes, you're talking about the invasion of Normandy and the beaches. And what's on my mind today is while World War II was going on in Europe with Germany, uh, the Japanese invaded us at Pearl Harbor. If the Japanese had not invaded us at Pearl Harbor, there is no way that we would have ever gotten into World War II with Germany. This is a historical fact, well known, very conveniently forgotten. During the 1930s, the United States had an excellent relationship with Adolf Hitler. They kept it cool and quiet, of course, but they had no worries with Hitler before the Japanese invaded, and Hitler was their boy, and Hitler won the war for Franco in Spain, and, that, and what was going to be going on with Hitler is he was supposed to go into Russia and crush the commies. That's why we loved him. He was our boy to go after the Russians, which he did. Then the Russians have been saying for years and years, we won World War II, the Russians say. Well. We drew off the troops from the Western Front. And if Russia hadn't fought Hitler, then Hitler would have taken his U-2 rockets and thrown mm. them into bloody London well. and conquered the English uh -huh. easily, no worries. Uh -huh. right? And then from England, he could now shoot his rockets into Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. and New York and Boston. We didn't want that. No, we, we definitely, we definitely, happy. and I just, I just, I just. Continue, <laughs> you have to tell me, go ahead. Yeah, we don't want that. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say that, I'm sorry. You know, I think we have a slot open uh, on WBAI. That might be available. Well, okay, well, that's, I, that's, I'm sorry, I'm like, this is not a laughing matter. I no, just, but I have to say one thing that I do enjoy. 
I really like that we have a diversity of opinions and right. a diversity of callers. Right. And, and, and there, as far as the United States, I mean, I don't think we have we have time for the entire history lesson. I don't think that there's a question just as a, a historical fact that there was in in some cases and for some time, a policy of appeasement toward the Third Reich, towards the Nazis that clearly was not uh, perhaps the... Uh, the best the best idea the best way to get things done uh as far as the russians claiming that they won world war ii i think that uh, uh certainly russian casualties in world war ii were were immense and and probably far beyond uh, what the average person understands them to be but uh, i don't think we are here particularly today on the 75th anniversary of d-day to declare a winner uh, as far as who contributed the most to the, the war effort. So with that, knowing that we only have a few minutes left, you know I want to come back to something because I like to do this. I like to bring up the fact that we are BAI buddies and that you... <laughs> you make me crack up sometimes. Sorry. We are BAI buddies. And I would love for you, if you are a longtime or even a new listener of WBAI, whether it's Driving Forces or any of our shows, to show your support moving ahead, even just for a small contribution, you know, five, ten dollars, twenty dollars a month, just a recurring donation. And as Celeste noted uh, at the beginning of the show, we talked about our author, Ian, <laughs> Ian Rafowitz. I just love some of the callers. I just have to say that. I just, I just, I just get really. I like the passion. Well, you know, I, I have to add here that I'm from Brighton Beach, so I get it. I like the passion. Look, I like, I like the fact that people can call in. <laughs> what? I'm serious. I like the fact that people can call into this program and give their opinion, and whether I agree with it or Jeff agrees with it or James agrees with it or anybody, you know, that people have a chance to actually call up this radio station and get on the air and have other people hear their views and we can talk about it and we can have a dispute about it and sometimes it's you know sometimes it's entertaining and sometimes it's extremely upsetting or it's emotional with all those things but this is something that you really cannot get anywhere else so give us a call 516-620-3602 516-620-3602 if you want to support independent, non-corporate, commercial-free radio where you can call up literally just like the people you heard right now and have your voice heard right here in New York and all over the world streaming on WBAI.org. This is the time to do it. Please don't wait. 516-620-3602. So we're going to be coming to a close in just a minute or two. Uh, I want to thank our guests, Hank Scheinkoff, who we didn't mention that he's a rabbi, by the way. I don't think we talked about ah, that. Well, we, we, we used many titles for him. I think doctor was one of them. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I should have told you, James. That was something else in his bio. So we, we want to thank Hank Scheinkoff. We want to thank Joe Daniels. And I really uh, like the fact that you, Celeste, uh, uh, had noted that we really should read off the names of the individuals uh, yeah. who received the Medal of Honor. Right, the 13, the 13 recipients of the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award given for valor in combat in the United States. Those 13 names specifically, uh, as a result of D-Day, we are remembering the 75th anniversary of D-Day today, and we appreciate you joining us for that. 
And I want to thank James, of course, who's always wonderful on the board. And most especially, I want to thank you, our listeners, for supporting non-commercial, non-corporate radio. Go to WBAI.org right now if you would like to uh, check out the show. If you missed it, we'll be back here next Thursday. Have a great day. up on WBAI at the top of the hour we have the WBAI evening news with our news guy Paul Dorienzo. Mark your calendars for a special event with Tom Hartman, that's me, and WBAI's Leonard Lopate on my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Don't miss the brutal role guns have played from the enforcement of slavery, Native American genocide, to post-Civil War racism, and the solutions we can put into place now to stop gun violence in America. It's Saturday, June 8th from 7 to 9 p.m., $40 plus you get a free book. Come hear me interviewed by Leonard Lopate. The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment at The Commons, 388 Atlanta. Avenue in New York City. The $40 ticket will include the event and a book. There'll be a Q&A afterwards, so bring your questions. Get your tickets at give2wbai.org. That's give2wbai.org. And you can also call to get tickets at 516-620-3602. That's give2wbai.org. Or call 516-620-3602. I look forward to seeing you there and tag your it. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders of The Laura Flanders Show. The Left Forum is right around the corner, and they have generously donated weekend passes to WBAI listener supporters who make a $50 pledge in support of WBAI. I've had the pleasure of hosting many panels and plenaries at The Left Forum over the years, and I'm doing it again this time. I'll be hosting the Saturday plenary on the 50th anniversary of Stonewall and a session with Chris Hedges and Rick Wolf 
on Lenin. So come meet me, Laura Flanders, and the others at the 2019 Left Forum and be part of a conversation about radically imagining and building a different future. Make a pledge of $50 today and lock in your free weekend pass to the Left Forum, taking place in Brooklyn June 28th through June 30th. That's the 28th through the 30th in Brooklyn. Go to give, then the numeral 2, WBAI.org. That's give to WBAI.org and search Left Forum. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening. See you at the Left Forum. You're listening to WBAI New York. The time now is... Five o'clock. I know it's not. I take it back. It's six o'clock. <laughs>